difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and the ways it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Keith Phipps, here again with... Genevieve Kosky, Tosh Robinson. Scott Tobias. In our last episode, we discussed Sam Raimi's 2004 film, Spider-Man 2, a film about a young man overwhelmed with responsibilities who undergoes a crisis of confidence. And oh yeah, he's also uh, Spider-Man. In this episode, we'll look at Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, a remarkable new animated film written by Peter Lord and Roddy Rothman and directed by Rothman, Peter Ramsey, and Bob Persichetti. There's a lot going on in Into the Spider-Verse, and that's by design. It begins as the origin story of Miles Morales, an alternate universe Spider-Man created by writer Brian Michael Bendis and artist Sarah Pacelli in 2011. A Brooklyn teenager of Afro-Latino parentage, he's been a compelling character in comics ever since and helped bring some much-needed diversity to Marvel since its introduction. He's as overwhelmed as Peter Parker and often has a hard time balancing being a teenager with being a superhero, but he also has his own distinct background and problems. It's not surprising that he's now being embraced by a wider audience finding him for the first time with this film. But Miles is only one part of the grand Spider-Man story told in the film. It's also a Peter Parker story, one that finds an older disillusion down on his luck Peter playing a reluctant mentor to Miles after the Peter of Miles' universe dies. Peter's not the only visitor from another universe, however. The film also features the 30s gumshoe Spider-Man noir, an alternate universe Gwen Stacy who's become Spider-Woman after the death of her BFF Peter Parker, Peter Porker, the spectacular Spider-Ham, and Penny Parker, a Japanese-American girl with a robotic spider sidekick. Fate forces them to band together to defeat a common foe, actually a few common foes, keep the universe as we know it intact, and in the process, prove just how elastic the idea of Spider-Man is, and how variations on the same story of a character weighed down but not defeated by power and responsibility can resonate in any universe. We'll talk about it more after the break. want to learn to be Spider-Man. Can you teach me? Yes, I can. Time to swing. Ah, Good, you're doing it. Double tap to release and whip it out again. Okay. Whip and release. You're a natural. Whip. Hey, guys. Who are you? I'm Gwen Stacy. I'm from another, another dimension. How many more spider people are there? Hey, fellas. Hello. This could literally not get any weirder. It can get weirder. Okay. We need to get back to our universes soon. Brooklyn is going to collapse. My family lives in Brooklyn. Whoa, 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 whoa. Miles, what's wrong? This was never your city. It's mine. If I don't destroy the collider, none of us will have a home to go home to. Remember, what makes you different? Let's go. Is what makes you Spider-Man. All right, everybody. Uh, once again, I'll, I'll lead off with saying I, I really dug this movie a lot. What do everybody else think? Loved, Tasha, I'm looking loved at you. Loved this oh, movie good. Oh, so much. Good. Everyone just breathed a sigh. Really. <laughs> so much. Wait, 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 wait. But we need to... Uh, Scott, are you in agreement? Yeah, with, I'm on what's... board. Okay, phew. All right, go ahead, Tasha. <laughs> well, well, wait, wait. What, what about oh, you? Yeah, maybe it. maybe you can be the outlier. No, I'm Keith? not the outlier. No, no I already said I... Okay, okay. We're all on board. I, I only, I'm only a curmudgeon for these moments, you know, because <laughs> I, I just... Building up the stakes by hating everything that you love <laughs> and in fact everything in the cinematic universe just it's like we're back to George R. R. Martin's writing I just pile on the injustice of my hatred for all things good and true on you guys so it'll feel so much better when I love a film this much 
I have just always loved films that are are dense and complicated and move so fast that it's a challenge to keep up. Mm. But this movie piles on so many of the very idiosyncratic things I love. Vivid color, incredibly ambitious animation. It's playing with the form. It's playing with the idea of the, the origin story. It's playing with the idea of the comic book movie. It's playing with the idea of the superhero. It's crazy, crazy meta. It's very complicated. But at the heart of it, it's also telling a you know a familiar origin story about a young person coming into their own discovering who they are and standing up for the people that count against the things that they're afraid of i mean it has the underlying form of a good hero story and then so many trappings that just make it crazy fun yeah i mean just on the issue of the animation you know, there's a lot more to talk about but i just love it when people remember not everything has looked like pixar now yeah i mean oh it, yeah and not only that this is not this doesn't look like any film i've ever seen before you know and the, there's, the there's... way it uses like pattern and texture mm-hmm. like the bende dots and the little like mm-hmm. hash marks which are again very evocative of the the comics medium but in a very unusual way for for film yeah a funny thing about that we ran an interview over at the verge with the directors and one of the things that uh, Devin Maloney, who interviewed them, kind of pinned them down on was like, oh, yeah, that we had to kind of reinvent animation for this. And she's like, <laughs> OK, how specifically? You know, because they kind of hand waved it. And they give her some specific technological details of like things that they had to, to redo. But one of the things was everybody in the animation industry now uses a whole bunch of like standard programs and standard uh, like character sets and building sets and modeling tools and lighting tools. And they wanted to do something different. And they had all of this existing software that they had to break. The reason all of these movies look so alike is because they're all being built with very similar tools. And if you want to do something different, you kind of have to start from scratch in an industry where you know anything you can do to be cost effective, especially in animation, you're going to want to do. So having somebody come along and, and make something like this is just doubly impressive because you can't do it with existing tools. It's like when painters like beat the hell out of their brushes before they paint. Yeah, <laughs> that's how they did it. They just beat the hell out of a computer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I mean, what are we talking about here? We're talking about the the dots. The dot. What are they? I mean, just I mean, them? there's so many different like animation like styles and flourishes throughout this, and like it's not it's not consistent. Like it like what one of the things I found so interesting is how it shifts animation styles while also like being like under sort of the same broad stylistic umbrella, but it brings in like I said different flourishes depending on you know where the movie is and what it's trying to do. But like you compare something like the big science magic showdown at, at the end and how like almost psychedelic that gets, you know, compared to the more street level stuff, and it's all recognizable as kind of the same style but the animation is functioning in different ways you know they do the the crazy panel stuff that you know things like only the hulk did but they go even further into like actually using the wavy lines coming out of characters heads uh-huh. when their spider senses uh-huh. activate mm-hmm. yep. which they never actually like explain spider sense they're just like <laughs> if you if you know this milieu if you know any of these characters you know what's going on here we're just going to have weird lines coming out of their heads and they all perk up yeah. i just love that <laughs> we're like well, i think it's miles who comes who, who comes back and they ask if he was followed and he wasn't sure wasn't sure that suddenly all of his spidey senses uh, light up it's, uh, this film is it's, it, it comes out you in such a rush that it's so it's almost it's really almost hard for me to remember mm-hmm. the film at i really a, wish a, i'd been able to see it a second time yeah, before this discussion I, mean, I, I just remember just have i had a great time watching it and i particularly liked it once it finally got every all the pieces in place and all uh, all the various uh 
uh, spider folks were together and working as a team. I mean, that's when the film really started to click for me. I don't know if it's a flaw, really, because it was just to, to want to actually have to return to a movie, but it, but it is almost too much to process how much this film has going on in, in one viewing. Yeah, I remember when I first heard about this, I thought two things like it's cool they're doing a Miles movie because it's a good character, but also it would be like a cute little sideline to the real thing which is with the live action superhero movies and like after this like well, do we really need those live yeah. action superhero <laughs> movies can we just do more of these these are all this was pretty great from the moment I saw the first trailer, I was intensely jazzed for what this movie mm-hmm. could be because it was just so clear that they were doing something ambitious and outsized with with the feel of the movie. And it's like they took inspiration from urban graffiti. They took inspiration from from like hip hop and jazz music. They took inspiration from the idea of screen printing, like a lot of the the textures and patterns I'm betting come out of that idea, just like exploring how old time comics worked and like how ink overlays worked in in early comics. There's just so much texturing going on in this film. And it comes across as so unusual because we're so used to seeing these like very poreless, shiny worlds that are increasingly being pushed towards photorealism in a way that's technologically exciting in its own way. But then, you know, you've got this, which is just like a a radical push backwards towards how expressive and stylized and cartoony can we get. Yeah. And I'm, I'm hoping others take their cues from it. And as much as I'm looking forward to any sequels or spinoffs they do from this, like I hope they're as innovative as this in, in their own way. You know, if they do a, a noir movie, it's not just the noir sequences we see here. Like they do, it's there's a little more far reaching than that. But I don't know. I'm, I'm not going to be disappointed by movies that haven't been made yet. You yeah. know, I want to just bring in like really briefly a little light critique, not with the style or tone, but with the the message or the moral of anyone can be Spider-Man <laughs> and like I get that in a, on a like be the change you want to see in the world level but this movie makes very clear not everyone can be Spider-Man it is very important that you get bitten by a spider I'm pretty sure Spider-Man. that there is an asterisk on that anyone who is bitten by a radioactive spider and has amazing powers and amazing responsibility can be Spider-Man yeah. P- Penny wasn't uh she has a, she has a robot yeah, and but, but the spider is in the robot that's by true, the end right. of the film, yeah, and like true. who yeah. has to who has to sad back to her own dimension yeah. with her her broken spider robot, yeah. and like I I get why that is a resonant or important thing in the context of Miles Morales and and Gwen Stacy for that matter, and like shaking up who can be Spider Man or Peter Porker, you know, <laughs> like like, it, like that that fits within the idea of like there can be all these different kinds of spider entities but i feel the way the movie kind of ends and posits it as a moral i guess like just felt a little empty or full of hot air empty of hot air to to me you know i mean it feels a little ratatouille like it's it's Mm -hmm. taking that exact same moral line and making it less integrated throughout the film i think But I don't know. I mean, it didn't really bother me. It didn't, it didn't bother me because I didn't take it terribly seriously as a moral. It seemed like to me like the real sort of moral, the real overarching idea of this film is that like family matters. Oh, it's um, not something about power and responsibility. It might also be something about power and responsibility. But I think that this film is just so interesting for the way it takes. I mean, one of the kind of quintessential elements of Peter Parker Spider-Man is the angst. And we see a ton of it in Spider-Man too, but 
you know, going back to the the earliest days of Spider-Man, it was always, I can't tell anybody and I have all this responsibility and I have the weight of the, you know, the death of Uncle Ben and I can't ever tell Aunt May and my employer hates me. We have none of those elements here, but we have just as much crushing angst over the family members that he does have and his relationship to them. Uncle Aaron. Oh, his, God, his relationship with Uncle Aaron is so specific and warm and cool mm-hmm. and believable i like the just the, the casual scenes between them is it's one of my favorite parts of a movie that i liked just about every part of i wrote a whole piece about how much i enjoy the the broken down burnout uh late 30s peter parker oh, played by jake johnson jake johnson is so good in he, this. he's so good and like the implications mm-hmm. this is me being just sort of a glum person i guess but for all like the positivity that's in this movie it's like Maybe you stay at this too long. You, everyone ends up like that, mm-hmm. you know. That's a type of character I'd never really seen in, 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 really in comics either. But it's not, you know, we've got like the old grizzled Dark Knight Batman, but we never had like what have I done with my life uh, superhero <laughs> before? And, I mean, relatable. It's like he's got uh, a but, job in the media. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Adam West didn't have the tightest superhero bod, did he? <laughs> Uh, no, <laughs> no, no, but people true. people weren't perpetually bringing it up. Like everybody that that <laughs> Spider Man runs into, like takes a look at his gut and like makes a dig at him. And I mean, like I'm you know, for for personal reasons, I'm not really down with fat shaming, but I still laughed an awful. It's lot. funny in context. <laughs> it's funny in the context, specifically the context of like he's let himself go. He knows he's let himself go, and he's he's just like so. Oh, God, I'm working on it. Like yeah. I'm in the middle of a giant cross universe. C- crisis i don't have time to hit the gym right now I mean, if you think about this film in the context of like other kind of lord miller films there are obviously you know there's a lot more people involved in them but their fingerprints seem to be on this oh, sure. it has that feel of like the lego movies and that sort of thing the way they they're able to just to to make movies that are you know cool and hip and, and meta and full of really interesting references and song choices and things like that that also have as much heart as this one does it's just i don't know how they do it <laughs> they do it every time and it's like this weird formula it seems that they that gets followed and then always results in, in a movie that i really like i don't know if the uh, hats off to them i mean solo didn't really work but that wasn't really did, that wasn't one of these type of uh type of movies you know one of their secret weapons is just moving so fast mm-hmm. that you don't have time to j- digest like the the lego movie the uh, cloudy with a chance of meatballs the mm, lego batman right. movie like all of these these films fill the screen with with color and movement and then fill your ears with really pretty funny jokes that just come like at a machine gun pace and it's like from time to time you may think i'm not sure that beat works oh my god what's going on now like you don't you don't necessarily have time to digest i'm looking forward to someday pausing and reading all the names of spider-man's christmas carols from his from his apparently <laughs> best-selling christmas album oh geez listening to that did you you guys aren't nearly as much uh stay through the credits uh people as i, I stay am through the credits. i hope you listen to the song oh well, oh. well and and i thought you meant the post credits sequence oh well which that's was very funny but yeah. but yes the song and uh, I mean, obviously, that's a humorous song choice, but I, I do want to shout out the soundtrack, like the actual soundtrack to hear uh, there to this movie, which I loved mm-hmm. and have been listening to and is like my new like workout mix. It's just it's uh, really very unusual for a superhero movie, excepting maybe Black Panther. But even that that was a little more, I think, curated by Kendrick Lamar and his style of preferences and just the range of sort of hip-hop sounds that uh, across this soundtrack 
I really loved and really liked in like how they're used in the movie. And it was unusual too. I was like, is that is that black sheep? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We're hearing black sheep in a movie in 2018. That's awesome. Yeah. We should move on, but I do want to go. I can't decide who my favorite supporting uh, Spider-Man yeah, yeah. is. I mean, I, I guess we kind of had to count Gwen as the core, th- one of the core three characters. Yeah. And then she's terrific too. But but like Noir and Spider-Ham and Penny Parker, they're all so fun. I, it feels like very basic to say like, I like Spider-Ham, but everything that comes out of John <laughs> Mulaney's mouth. It's now. <laughs> Thank you. Like I, oh, yeah. Tasha, ta- are, are you about to disagree with oh, me? The, I'm not. I don't disagree that he's like hilarious and fun. But when you mention his snout, like oh. the the fact that his nostrils are little spider eyes and that his <laughs> nose is constantly making little spider expressions, and his nostrils get angry when he's angry and they get wide when he's scared, it freaked me out. <laughs> it was just. It was a perpetual. Ugh. It's like the uncanny. Does the uncanny valley exist for cartoon spider pig? noses <laughs> that is a fair critique i am my affection is primarily based in john mulaney's voice performance he's so good i, I mean the, the whole big mouth cast you just can't just put him <laughs> in everything i mean because like, like if you've seen uh, you know nick kroll in, as uh, in captain underpants is i mean it's just, i mean nick kroll is like next level voice actor he yeah can, he can do every yeah multiple many he does many voices on big mouth yeah. uh and uh mulaney's a complete delight here i don't have a favorite i can't I, it's very hard for me to resist uh, uh, Nicholas Cage's uh, work here, <laughs> but everyone's really wonderful. I've actually I've got a really tragic choice. I I was just so taken with original world Peter Parker who mm. who dies. Uh, it's Chris Pine, Chris Pine, Peter Parker slash Spider Man. There's there's something so nobly tragic about the way he goes out and you know it's the something that you don't ever get to see is like a superhero giving his all and losing and then not coming back you know not being resurrected in some form and it's it's terrifying like what happens to him is is viscerally horrifying and i'm pretty impressed that the movie went there but then you get that scene where he's you know he, he has to kind of chase miles off because he can see what's going to happen and he has to both assign him a terrible duty and protect him by getting him out of there you know so in his final moments uh, that that version of spider-man can face his enemy alone it's one of the more poignant things i think i've seen in a superhero movie period without even getting into it being a, like an animated cross-time adventure thing you just like him because he doesn't have a weird snout. I do <laughs> like that he doesn't have a weird snout. That would have made that seem way less poignant. Well, we'll probably keep talking about snouts um, <laughs> in one form or another, but we'll wrap up this purely into the Spider-Verse discussion as we move into connections after a break. Now it's time for connections when we bring these two films together and talk about the things they have in common. I think I'm going to start off. I think both these films have Spider-Man. And I'm going to, I'm going to but one that. only has one Spider-Man and the other has 
many spider's man mm. that's true well i mean i'd say similarities and differences look well, the treatment of spider-man as a character in these movies um uh, what is what does spider-man 2 do what does into the spider-verse do and what do they have in common i mean one of the big things is again going back to angst mm-hmm. that moment in spider-verse where they all kind of gather around miles morales and is like man we're sorry somebody in your life died and it's tragic and you have to deal with it but that's part of being spider-man every single one of us has been through this it's a really interesting beat because it kind of minimizes his pain, like the freshness of his grief and horror a little bit. But he's also talking to people he knows can understand him because they've all been there. So much of that Spider-Man 2 Peter Parkerness is just about this perpetual pain of, I'm not allowed to be good at any of the things I should be good at. I'm not allowed to be a good student. I'm not allowed to be a good boyfriend. I'm not allowed to be a good employee because I've got to be a good Spider-Man. And, you know, he his life is defined by his angst and loss and pain. And we see that in a really different way in Spider-Verse. But it's still, it's, it's going back to those same hurt character beats. I thought it was interesting to look at these in terms of Spider-Man on his own versus Spider-Man with help. The Peter Parker of the Raimi Spider-Man movies, like, he's it. And he's figuring out how to be Spider-Man all by himself. And in Into the Spider-Verse, Spider-Man already exists. So there's already this existing paradigm of Spider-Man that Miles is figuring out how he fits into and is different from and he has the assistance of these other spider-men as well not to mention you know chris pine spider-man's bunker in aunt may's house with with you know everything already in there for him so the raimi spider-man movies i feel like that trauma or whatever you're talking about tasha it's it's a lot more based in isolation you know he is the only spider-man no one understands what he's going through. He doesn't have anyone he can go to for support. And at the very beginning, that is the case with Miles, but that quickly becomes not the case. And he's only able to become Spider-Man with the assistance of this like already existing spider universe. Although the flip side of that is that they also kind of reject him. They they sure. also kind of judge him. Mm-hmm. They look at him and like, you're not up to our current level of Spider-Manage. So, you know, he has to live up to this he impossible to prove himself. Yeah. As a 13-year-old boy who, like, instead of failing his uncle, although that is part of it, but he's also, he's failed his universe as Spider-Man. He wasn't able to help. He wasn't there. And his world lost a hero, and he couldn't do anything about it. So he's got some pretty big responsibility to fill. Mm-hmm. I, I think both also kind of find Spider-Man by who he isn't. All these villains who are, if they're not gifted with superpowers, they're gifted with uh, extraordinary power of one form or another, thinking of Kingpin. He's defined by not being a self-interested character, or at least someone who may want things in life, but wants to put, will put others first. And I think that's something that's consistent. I mean, I think one thing with Into the Spider-Verse is you see what is essential to Spider-Man. I think that's one of the key elements too. I mean, he doesn't have to be a man. He doesn't have to be a certain race or, or whatever, but he does have to be someone who's not going to put himself first or herself first or, or pork self first or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> well, and part of that, I think Spider-Verse, both of these films address this very directly, but I think Spider-Verse maybe emphasizes it a little more, is that what defines a hero is that feeling of responsibility, that that need to get in the way when things happen. And like throughout Spider-Man 2, after he's thrown away the spider suit, you keep seeing him like watching a mugging or watching the police go by and he's just so clearly thinking, 
I need to do something about this and then trying to repress that side of himself and, and kind of ultimately he can't. And part of that is, I mean, with a subway, it's just a feeling of responsibility for, for many, many lives. And I kind of wish in Spider-Man 2 it didn't end up coming down to, well, yeah, but, well, the woman I'm, I love is threatened, so I have to come back like for, for that aspect of it. I wish it wasn't so selfish. But in Spider-Verse, it's like, I have this duty. I may not be good enough to pull it off. I may not be the only one who's trying to pull it off, but it's still a duty. It's a charge that was given to me personally. They both just feel like an incredibly crushing weight of responsibility they can't let go of no matter how much they want to. You know, and the one thing I will say with Into the Spider-Verse is that it's not just really about all of these characters who, who share certain you know physical traits or abilities. It's, it's just this inclusionary idea that people from all, a lot of different places and, and, and backgrounds can, can share a common set of values and, and act on those values together as, as a team. I mean, it's kind of the, to me, sort of the heart of the, of the movie is that notion. We've also got in both movies, Spider-Man dealing with power dysfunction um, mm-hmm. for from mm-hmm. entirely different ends. Like if you want to take Spider-Man 2's power dysfunction as a an aging out, uh, thinly veiled metaphor, you can take the version in Spider-Verse as coming in from the other direction, going through puberty, don't know how things are going to work. Sometimes they work when you don't want them to, and Mm -hmm. it's embarrassing, and sometimes they don't work when you do want them to, and it's embarrassing. I think an organic web shooter would be a a good way to express (laughs) that. Uh, You know what's better than an organic web shooter? Invisibility. That's that's like the best power in the spider power pantheon, right? I would say it's the best power there is. Well, I guess flying's pretty cool, but... I don't know. You think invisibility would be the... Climbing walls? You would take well, invisibility wait, versus flight. This is like the no, yeah. the what, classic. What's so great about invisibility? Because I feel like you can basically you immediately start t- trying to deceive people and that kind of thing. I mean, it's the reason why the Invisible Man character is always the bad yeah. guy, you know. But uh, I think but, in a in a combat scenario, yeah, sure. oh, combat, sure. Everyday life, though, I'd rather climb a wall. <laughs> oh no, you'd be, but you'd be like a creep, like instantly. <laughs> you'd just be stealing bags of gold coins from banks. <laughs> well, that, that's why and buying you, particle accelerator oh, kits. Invisible you wouldn't man, even have to buy them. Invisible Man, Hollow Man, every Invisible Man story is about how you turn into a creep, basically, yeah. <laughs> like you said. Yeah. Um, yeah. One other just quick semi-superficial thing about how each film treats Spider-Man, and this is obviously built into the Spider-Man mythos, is like, he's always a prodigy of some sort, you, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, he's, he's a genius, he's a science genius, and like sort of classically, but I like how the Miles Morales character brings sort of a more artistic flair to that like he's obviously going to this you know fancy magnet school but it's he's definitely portrayed as you know not being quite so academically inclined as he is artistically inclined and i find that very interesting let's talk about new york because i have boo we hate it we're in chicago well it is. <laughs> I, I have um i have a theory i or a thought at least i, I feel like weirdly enough new york in into the spider-verse feels less stylized than the one in the Raimi films, which feels like it's very much sort of manicured to have the right kind of comic booky elements where I think there's kind of a grit and, and sort of realism to the, the New York and into the Spider-Verse. That, am, I, am I crazy for suggesting this? What about his apartment, though? Hmm? What about his crappy apartment? That's very New York. <laughs> yeah, that's true. It's true. almost too New York. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, but I kind of know what you mean in terms of like the public space aspect of New York. And I, I don't know how much stock I want to place in this, but like these Spider-Man films were very close 
post 9-11, you know, and I, I remember in culture at that time, there was a definite celebration of New York's resilience and, mm-hmm. and everything going on in, in the culture. And I think maybe there might be a little of that bleeding over into the portrayal, certainly in uh, the 2002 Spider-Man, but I think it probably lingers here as well. Although there was also the really famous erasure of the Twin Towers from Spider-Man advertising. That's right, was- yeah heavily Twin Towers-centered originally. I mean, I do think that the Spider-Man 2 train sequence is meant to evoke that kind of sense of New York pulling together after Mm -hmm. a a shared catastrophe. Mm, Yeah, for sure. I didn't really get a a very strong feeling for New York into the Spider-Verse. Maybe it's because it doesn't, it seems to avoid some of those markers but i think i mean specifically like the street level scenes of brooklyn yeah that feels like well and the fact that it's brooklyn yeah and, and not manhattan you yeah. know that is <laughs> maybe not in our reality today uh brooklyn isn't the more you know street level part of new york city but i think like in the popular imagination it it, it still is you know but pizza <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I just I, I'm I'm tickled by how pizza is is uses a gag in both of these movies, and it feels somewhat tied to the New Yorkism. I I, I don't know. It's like pizza a thing with Spider Man in the in the comics at I don't, all. I can't think of it. Like it's not like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Or <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> plenty, if you historically go back through through fifty plus years of Spider Man comics, you'll probably find yeah. a lot of pizza. But I don't, we I go don't. through that, you know, decades of dinners I've had. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well. yeah, but I, I mean. Like I just think it's a it's an interesting uh, culinary signifier of of New York, you know. Like even though we have our own pizza here in Chicago, like when you represent Chicago with a food, what's it going to be? Hot dog. A hot dog. Yeah. Some yeah. some form of encased meat. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Sausages. People yeah. say people say terrible things about Chicago because of our pizza. We're we're a great food city. Sorry. I had to take a break for a se- some second city whining. Go ahead. I'm not a big fan of the deep dish pizza though. Me neither. That said, how much time did you spend during Spider Man Two? thinking about what those pizzas would have looked like if you actually got to see inside those boxes. I mean, those things had been crushed and yeah, flipped and carried and sideways. And by that guy hanging out on his balcony. Uh, he, he, he took that pizza, he took that slice of pizza back and then he stuffed a web-covered slice of pizza back into one of those crushed-up boxes. Uh, you know, you organic know. web, too. We're talking about something that came out maybe, of his body. Maybe it was organic pizza. That, Who knows? Honestly, that was a deserved firing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It really was. Yeah. Yeah. One, one, one travel tip, though. If you do want deep dish Chicago pizza, uh, Pequod's uh, is yep. the one to I, go with. I second this. And yeah. if you want some sort of bizarre food that you'll find nowhere else, go to Chicago Pizza and Oven Grinder, which is basically anyone else ever been there? I don't think so. No, Scott, you never. Uh, way, way back in the day, I don't ever. I don't. I don't think I had this specific pizza. Yeah, it's it's it's. Well, I mean, the whole thing. It's just basically more like a pot pie. That that's kind of <laughs> right. Pizza. Anyway, so. I mean, I've heard actual Chicago deep dish compared to round lasagna. So yeah, it was yeah. it was yeah. slow. Yeah. You do these things. It's why Spider Man's in New York because that pizza will not like fill them up like the Chicago. <laughs> well, pizza. that's and, that's why you get eight of them. Yeah, well, and deep dish is way too heavy to fly through the air yes. uh, with. You know, it's just going to weigh true. you down. There's, there's no way he could have swung eight of those things through the city. <laughs> uh, all right, so we touched on the villains before. Let's 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 touch on those villains some more. Um, putting out the kingpin as the main villain of this one, although we can talk about all the other supplementary vil- villains as well. Uh, there, he wants something very different than what Doctor Octopus wants in Spider-Man Two. It's definitely more of a of a power grab than what Doc Ock is up to. Um, but it's also like very much based in his wife. 
you yeah. know, well, like, like he wants true. to rescue his wife. They're not so different after all. <laughs> yeah, and it's, and it's not just uh, based in uh, a dead wife. It's also based in a sense of personal failing that they're trying to, to rectify, a sense that they did something tragically wrong and they're trying to unmake it. Like Doc Ock is, is convinced that something must have gone wrong. It couldn't have been his calculations and he's out to prove it if he can just like remake the machine and get it working he can prove that it wasn't his error that killed his wife if the kingpin can recover his family from another dimension he can start over having not made the mistake that he made like i i think both of them are actually very much alike and they're both entirely willing to sacrifice the rest of the city around them to get that intellectual point proven to themselves that they were not at fault in this thing that they were entirely at fault in Hmm. Interesting. Though I, I have to say, this would be one area where I'd, I'd say point point Spider Man too. I mean, I didn't really feel like the villain or villains, I guess, in um, into the Spider Verse uh, for for however much there are parallels in terms of their the humanity at the root of their villainy resonated quite as much for me as. Do you think that might have to do with how Kingpin is designed in Into the Spider Verse, which is very eye catching? Yeah, I mean, blocky. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Apparently taken from a Bill Sienkiewicz comic. Yeah, it's, it, it looks like he does in um, Daredevil, Daredevil, graphic Little novel. Little yeah, mm-hmm. that Frank Miller wrote, where he's just sort of like in typical Bill Sienkiewicz fashion, just makes him sort of larger and inhuman. But uh, Although looking... that design did also very much make me think of the thugs in Triplets of Belleville, mm. who were also like mm. giant refrigerator-shaped blocks with little heads sticking out of them. It's interesting they bring in, in uh, Kingpin, which is a villain that, Spider-Man shares with with Daredevil. I wonder what the thought process was there. What I made mean, him uniquely suited to this movie? You get a whole sampling of other Spider-Man villains. You get a sort of version of the Green Goblin and a version of Scorpion and and a version of Doc Ock. And all of them go kind of far out on a limb. But I I kind of feel like the Green Goblin version goes furthest. Mm. I mean, he's kind of psycho godzilla like he's humongous what what exactly is that thing going on yeah i'm not sure exactly but it I almost feels like you know you've seen like sort of the tortured mostly human green goblin here's this guy instead <laughs> you know voiced by yorma Takone. yeah i mean and he feels he feels like a kind of a mushing together of of the green goblin and the lizard mm-hmm. is, is this the thing where though is this the thing where if i watch because again in the spider versus so busy <laughs> there's so much to kind of like catch up with it's so far it was so far ahead of me i felt i mean is this a thing where i'm going to return to it and regret dissing the effectiveness of the villains here maybe <laughs> well, I, well i'm just asking because what did, did what what kind of impact did they have on you i think they're very interestingly used but i think this is very much a hero's story they're all very conceptually interesting i like i like Catherine hahn as dr octopus I always like Catherine Hahn, but I don't. I don't think it, you know. Spider Man Two, you can say this is just as much the villain story as the hero story. I don't. I don't think that's true of Into the Spider Verse. Yeah, to touch on the uh, Catherine Hahn's Olivia Octavius, who does not have a, a comic book analog. Uh, she's a character created specifically for this movie. I was very curious about how she came to be uh, in this movie that is so referential to various comics and Spider Man storyline. It seemed. Uh, interesting that there was a character who did not have any sort of root in the comics. And apparently, Dr. Octopus was intended to be a male Dr. Otto Octavius, uh, but they were going to do, <laughs> the filmmakers played around with uh, doing sort of a big Lebowski, the dude version mm-hmm. of Doc uh, <laughs> Ock, but that would have like taken them out of New York, I guess. 
but I guess like one of the creators was watching something with Catherine Hahn in it and she was actually like what inspired them to make this character a, a woman and, and to cast her in it and as someone who just like totally stands for Catherine Hahn like that was very exciting for me to read because you know the character itself has not a whole whole lot maybe to do in the movie but she does have the only villain reveal Didn't in the see movie coming either yeah me neither yeah. boy did i enjoy that and it, and it was and it was definitely hidden that from we're the spoiling for everybody right now <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah spoilers guys i i think like in the final trailer there it was revealed uh you saw some tentacles so like people knew that there would be a, a doc ock element but uh i don't think anyone knew before the movie came out that it was going to be her so i think they pulled that off well and i liked her hair i find uh the kingpin in spider-verse much much scarier than i mean doc ock in spider-man 2 he's kind of a tragic figure you know he's you've you've seen what he used to be and you've seen how he's remade and and he kind of gets his redemption moment in the end but kingpin in spider-verse is like a force of i don't know anti-nature like the fact that he's just this this big light sucking black rectangle makes him feel entirely outside of the universe in some some way and like his willing to destroy anything literally with his fists to get what he wants. I mean, I'm, I don't want to circle back endlessly the death of Chris Pine, Peter Parker, but he beats the man to death with his fists. It's not really a beating. It's just like one big thunk. Well, then, and then he tries to do the same thing to Miles. And, you know, it just, it feels like child abuse. You know, it's so, it's, it's visceral. It's really literally hands on. Mm -hmm. You know, you've got one villain like standing in the corner talking to his different tentacles (laughs) and, uh, and the other one just like being willing to, to beat Jason Todd to death with a a crowbar, basically. He also has minions, you know, uh, in a way that uh, Doc Ock doesn't. Spider-Man mm-hmm. 2, like, you, you do kind of have James Franco's Harry Osborn, like, hanging out in the background, you know, prom- <laughs> promise of... We of, haven't of, talked about him at all. I know. Oh, that's true. We really haven't. I mean, I mean, he doesn't... He's not really full-on villain until the third movie, right? He's, I, yeah, he's kind of villain in training here. Yeah, yeah, with that, uh, I guess, uh, proto-credit sequence that is not during the credits in Spider-Man 2, but it feels like what today would be a credit sequence mm-hmm. with, with uh, him talking to his dad and the uh, Willem Dafoe cameo. But yeah, like for the most part in Spider-Man 2, it's just Doc Ock and his tentacles. And, you know, there's a there's a lot of villainry happening in, into the Spider-Verse. And I, I bring this up to talk about Prowler slash Uncle Aaron. Yeah, I think, yeah. I think I take back what I was saying before. It doesn't really apply to the, to the Prowler. That's that's, yeah. that's really, go ahead. Oh, I was just saying, like, I think that's really effectively done both like before the reveal that that is uh, Uncle Aaron. And I, I didn't have enough grounding in the comics to know that. I don't know if like, it, I believe it's a different costume than what you see in the comics. Okay. So I think it's, it's been a while since I've read the Prowler stories, but I think, you know, even if you know them, you're not necessarily going to know that's him. Yeah. Yeah. So I thought that was really effectively done the reveal, but also just like that character's design with like the nail knife fingers thing you know was uh, effective so i think with the olivia octavius kingpin prowler there's just like kind of a range of villainous like characters and designs and they all work a little differently they all have a little bit of a different emotional uh, effect it's not as focused as Doc Ock in Spider-Man 2 is. Like, they don't necessarily individually have as much reson- emotional resonance behind them. 
as Alfred Molina's Doc Ock has, but I think they collectively work in an interesting way. I think in Spider-Verse, you've got a whole bunch of Spider-Men, you need a whole bunch of enemies. And the enemy in that movie is this collective. It's not really the kingpin, it's it's this collective of baddies. I feel like in Spider-Man 2, the, the main enemy is Peter Parker mm. getting in his own way. Yeah. Like it's Doc Ock is there to provide a catalyst and to threaten MJ, which, you know, brings his powers back, which I still gets a little bit of an eye roll. But he's mm-hmm. he's a tragic figure that needs a tragic redemption rather than a full on villain. Like the the real conflict in Spider-Man 2 is Peter Parker like figuring out what he wants and how much he's willing to sacrifice to get it. Well, we should talk about how both relate to the, the overall series of Spider-Man films that have, that have come. And I, I, I mean the Raimi's, I mean the Garfield starring ones, I mean, I mean Homecoming, I mean uh, this one. <laughs> like we have basically two ways forward for Spider-Man. I don't think, and I think we will probably get him and enjoy both of them. But we have sort of the the Tom Holland starring. Here are the adventures, uh, live action adventures of Spider Man. Then we have this, which is offers like a cornucopia of of spider possibilities. Uh, which are you more excited about at this point? I'm mostly just kind of tickled that Spider Verse acknowledges the Raimi Spider Man. It's, mm. it's like here's the here's the upside down kiss scene. Here's the emo dance scene. Sure. Like yeah. oh, it openly acknowledges that that's all part of the canon. I think I mostly just want to see Miles Morales kind of coming into his own a little more and seeing what he's like as a confident Spider-Man more than I'm excited about him, you know, facing off against different alternate universe characters as kind of like teased towards the end. I just I want to see who he is as a 14 year old, like more confident Spider-Man whose powers work now that we've we've been through the crisis of conscience phase. Yeah, I I agree. I think the after seeing Spider-Verse, I was kind of thinking about like, is this a trick that works more than once? Can you do another movie with Spider-Ham? Does that work again? Like, mm-hmm. maybe it does, but I, I think you're going to get diminishing returns Like if you keep going back to this idea of, like, there are so many kinds of Spider-Man. And so, like, that realization sort of combined with the realization of, like, this is Miles Morales' debut on film, and he's only a part of it. You know, he's not really a solo Spider-Man here. So I think like in terms of where I wanted to go from here, like Tasha, I would like to see a little more development of Miles on his own than within sort of a conceptual framework. But one of my issues, though, with the Tom Holland Spider-Man is that he can't be on his own either, right? I mean, like he has to have Iron Man be a big part of his. But that's the life MCU, to... exactly. exactly. <laughs> yeah. But it's still yeah. a problem. It's still they're still there in a way that you know he doesn't get his own movie entirely and then of course he has to be a part of these extremely busy movies like civil war and uh, avengers 3 i mean sure. not anymore infinity war fixed that problem we're done <laughs> continuity continuity solved we're all good yeah he's well uh, you know r.i.p man there are no numbers anymore for sequels and apparently i forget where i heard this but it has something to do with seo that's part of why we're, we're getting subtitled movies, but not numbered movies anymore. Is that right? Yeah. Oh, man. I forget, I forget who was suggesting that as, as, as the reason why, but it makes sense to me. I want, yeah, I want, it, I it does of, actually make a lot of sense. I want out of the Spider-Verse where SEO has anything. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, I think Spider-Verse's version of SEO, where it's like a huge flailing multidimensional monster instead of a, a, like a small computer concept is, is pretty exciting. I wonder if our listeners who do not work in media are familiar 
familiar with what SEO is. Ser- search engine optimization. Google it. Mm, <laughs> yeah. wonder, I wonder what happens when you Google SEO. Who has oh, the best com- SEO? SEO explained SEO. by your, Box.com. Your computer, your computer falls into a black hole. Yeah. I, I wouldn't advise it, guys. Don't See, go we're, there. We're, a gener- we're the generation of REO, right? Speedwagon? <laughs> <laughs> wow. I think we. Oh, you think... have actually made a joke that makes me feel young. Like, <laughs> I, I feel like I'm too young to get that yeah. joke. I'm, I feel good. I, I think we may have gone too deep into the Spider Verse at this point, and uh, <laughs> why don't we end this segment? Uh, Spider Man Two is available on DVD and Blu-ray, and can be digitally rented on all the usual platforms. It's probably on TV somewhere right now. Spider Man Into the Spider Verse is in theaters now, and we will be right back with your next picture show. Finally, it's time to catch each other up on films or film-related items we've seen in the interim since our last podcast. We call it Your Next Picture Show in the hopes that it'll put some interesting choices on your radar. Genevieve, what in the film world has been good for you lately? Well, you know, I've been doing the end of year, make my way through the screener pile thing uh, for the past couple of weeks. And I kind of, uh, this week did a accidental John C. Riley double feature, two films that I, I liked quite a bit. Uh, so I'm just going to, I'm going to give the first one just a quick shout out, which is Ralph Breaks the Internet, uh, still in theaters now. I think anyone who wants to see Ralph Breaks the Internet has probably already seen it already. But, you know, I think like that one got maybe a little sort of, towards the uh, middling side of reviews and I that may be just kind of in comparison to Wreck-It Ralph which is like so so great but I did really like a lot of Ralph Breaks the Internet especially its theme of the internet's ability to feed on and exacerbate our insecurities and how that can affect friendships and the how it all culminates in a literalization of that idea that is just so weird and like borderline trippy yet still <laughs> feels like a natural extension of where Wreck-It Ralph went only filtered through this like very internet-y, bizarre humor lens. I, I, I liked it quite a bit, and there's a lot of fun stuff in there. So if you know, if for some reason you're on the fence about Ralph Breaks the Internet, I would say give it a chance. But the film I really want to talk about is The Sisters Brothers, which came out earlier this year by director Jacques Audiard. I'm probably mispronouncing that, but you know, Jacques's fine with it. Um, <laughs> I missed this one when it was in theaters, but it was on my radar because we got some li- we got multiple listeners writing in asking why we didn't pair this with Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid instead of Old Man and the Gun. And to an extent, I understand where they're coming from. You know, it's a Western set during the California gold rush of the mid-19th century. It's focused on a pair of outlaws, in this case, the titular brothers, whose surname is Sisters, played by Riley and Joaquin Phoenix. And there is at least one scene, an extended chase by relentless pursuers, that feels like a direct reference to Butch Cassidy. But Sisters Brothers feels like a much less of a crowd pleaser than Butch Cassidy is. Uh, it's ostensibly a dark comedy, but despite the presence of a you know known comedic persona like Riley, the darkness of its narrative really overshadows <laughs> the feints at humor it makes, at least in my opinion. That said, I found it really compelling, excluding one really nasty scene involving a spider that I admittedly just like <laughs> kept my head down the entire time for and did not actually watch. So, you know, maybe that was, you know, terrible and uh, ruined the whole movie, but I don't think it did. But I think this movie is really elevated by some really strong performances from Phoenix and especially Riley, as well as Jake Gyllenhaal and Riz Ahmed as the uh, prospecting targets of the sisters brothers who uh, work as hired muscle slash hitmen for a wealthy baron type. The narrative centers on the two brothers' sort of individual relationships to that work and how they envision their future. 
And without spoiling the specifics of where it leads them, it goes in a very dark and violent direction that I think is both very upsetting and completely earned. And the very end of this movie sticks the landing in a way I was really not expecting it to based on what came before. It might still be hanging out in a theater or two by the time you hear this, but you're more likely going to have to wait for it to hit home video and streaming, which my very cursory research indicates should be sometime in February. So uh, keep a lookout for the Sisters Brothers. Guys, I think some of you have seen and enjoyed this film. I saw it at TIFF and I loved it. And I I don't, I mean, it it didn't make my lists of the year, but... I'm just completely baffled at the degree to which the critical community seems to have completely slept on this movie. I, I think it was a hard sell. I mean, it's hard to really describe what the movie is. Um, uh, and I think part, I did a pretty good you job. Did a, you did a very good job. But, but I mean, it's not like like one of those with like just some sort of really obviously hooky present yeah. premise or the, or tone that's really uh, easy to easy to account for. Other, for people other than Genevieve, and then and um and it was really wrapped up in this mess that is Annapurna Pictures right now. I mean, yeah. and they they just they're having so much. They put a lot of money into it and got almost nothing back. And there's just a lot of chaos that's happening behind the scenes that did this film no favors. But um, I do like it. I think I think John John C. Riley is extraordinarily good in it too. I love it. Uh, Keith. You this, this you love this movie. You have, have you not seen it? How can sisters be brothers? So <laughs> uh, no, I, I, this is, I so this is so in the Keith wheelhouse. I did this massive list of Christmas movies followed by a massive list of Clint Eastwood movies. So my my elective viewing has been a little uh, limited lately. So uh, uh, no, it's uh, that is and a, a film we might be hearing about in just a minute from Tasha or mm-hmm. very near the top of the movies. <laughs> I need to, to watch but um, uh, well before we get to that Keith what's I, what's your next picture show? I also have a John C. Riley recommendation <laughs> it's a love fest um, it's a somewhat qualified recommendation because there's some movies things about this movie that I don't love it's called Stan and Ollie I, I referenced in the last episode it's, it is a biopic of Laurel and Hardy uh, starring John C. Riley as Oliver Hardy under a, a lot of makeup but I, I find the makeup not that distracting and Steve Coogan as uh, Stan Laurel and and uh this uh, film captures them at kind of a low point in their career when uh, the movies are they're not really in movies anymore and it's before their old shorts start playing on TV so they become sort of inescapable. It's the mid-50s and they, and they to make some money while they try to figure out uh, if they can make another movie or not, uh, they start doing these stage shows uh, in England, which really happened. And over the course of the film, they kind of uh, work out some differences and uh, and rehash bits of the past. And a lot of that feels a little forced. It feels a little scripted and, and some of the, the conflict a little compressed. So there's some moments that kind of ring hollow. But what doesn't is is Coogan and Riley as, as Laurel and Hardy, and who, who get these great... It's uh, great who, casting. It is. It is. It's inspired casting. And there's bits of it that kind of feel like one of the trip movies where there's kind of going around England seeing <laughs> different things. But they're really good at recreating the old routines. Like in the very beginning, just, just to amuse a, a hotel clerk, they they do this bit where they're checking in the hotel and, and Stan has, has all this luggage he can't handle. And, and Oliver just keeps you know shooting these, can you believe what I have to put up with glances <laughs> at, at, at the clerk. It's lovely. And if you know their film, there's like all these neat allusions to some some of their movies, but they they're also really good off stage as the, as these two people who were quite close to one another. Like you know, my sense is that people like Alvin Costello couldn't stand each other, but but Laurel and Hardy actually had a legitimate 
friendship, albeit a somewhat complicated one. And and um, just watching them play the the parts are really good, uh, is is worth the movie. And you also get Shirley Henderson as um, Hardy's wife, and you know it's always a delight when Shirley Henderson shows up in anything. So uh, it comes out comes out December twenty eighth. That's uh, my birthday. If anyone wants to send gifts, send gifts. Um, <laughs> so it'll be out in theaters um, by the time you hear yeah, by the time you hear this, some theaters anyway. I think it's going to roll out a little wider in January, but definitely worth your time. Tasha, how about you? Well, I've also been playing an uh, end of year list making catch up. I was headed over to Film Spotting for their top 10 of the year shows, and I felt uh, really behind on documentaries. So I got to catch up on things like The Writer, which I still haven't listened to you guys doing your full length uh, dissertation on The Writer. Now I'm really looking forward to it. Not really a documentary, which you'd know if you'd listen to that episode. Um, I know, <laughs> but it kind of, yeah, it's sort of documentary adjacent. Sort of like close up. Sort of like close yeah. up. Uh, but also Three Identical Strangers, which is a documentary and one of the, one of just the more surprising unfolding experiences I've had in a documentary in a long time. <laughs> mm-hmm. Just every time you think you know what's going on, there's a new revelation and it's even more shocking. Mm-hmm. Uh, Minding the Gap, which is a tremendous, tremendous film but uh we've we've talked about those all of these films here so i'm just gonna reiterate that all of the people who recommended those movies on this podcast are smart (laughs) um one thing we haven't talked about yet and uh we were kind of hanging on to in case we could do it as a pairing uh was harukazu kurita's uh shoplifters which i also recently saw for list making purposes and while it didn't quite edge onto my list boy is it it's an amazing experience. Karita is up there for me with the Darden brothers in terms of filmmakers who just like quietly about once every 18 months puts out a new film that is a remarkably textured, deeply emotional, incredibly evocative, quiet story about human life. And they're all minor miracles and they're all incredibly well made. And, you know, the attention amounts to a handful of art house people going, oh, another one of these. Mm-hmm. That was nice. It's they make nice films for nice people except that they're you know usually tragically racking and and emotionally uh, (laughs) emotionally complicated shoplifters is about a found family of uh japanese people living together they come across a young girl who's being neglected and hurt by her mother starved left out in the cold and so they just kind of pick her up and take her back to the house and incorporate her into this household of hustlers who all kind of have like a little grift going on, have a little side thing on the side. Um, The youngest kid, they have trained as a shoplifter and it's shoplifting is a family activity, but each one of them kind of goes off on their own little money making adventures over the course of this film. So much of this movie is just, I can't quite say it's observational because it all feels conceptually narratively stylized there's a an extended sort of sex scene slash naked hangout scene slash remember what we used to be like when we were younger scene between two of the older characters there's a lot of hangout scenes between the two youngest characters just traveling around together stealing things so much of this movie feels like a hangout movie but between really really idiosyncratic characters and it's just so well done. The character acting is so good. And it goes to places that I wasn't expecting. It's one of those reveal movies that the more you learn about what you're seeing on screen, the more emotional and evocative it gets. Uh, it's currently playing in limited release in theaters. Shoplifters, have, has anybody else seen it yet? Me, me, me. What did you think, Scott? I like it a lot. I think it's one of, I think it's a top drawer for, for that 
filmmaker. It reminded me the most more, most of uh, Nobody Knows, which is his movie about kids who are who have no parents around. But this one, one of the pairings we were thinking uh, of with this one was Akira, the Kurosawa movie, and they 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 both are really are about you know Japanese citizens who are just lost in the system, who are just who are not even don't even seem to be part of the, the the citizenry in terms of their in terms of their impact in terms of, the, in terms of the attention that they get from anyone really which kind of allows them in this case to be to be shoplifters because nobody's paying attention nobody cares it's a powerful film for sure i mean the one in palm d'or which he's never which he's not won before and i think it's kind of the best about as good as an example of what he does as you could probably see so i'm i'm with you on this one that's a good way to sum it up uh, shoplifters currently in theaters scott what what else has been good for you lately uh, well bumblebee has been good <laughs> i mean really honestly if you want to talk about surprises this year i mean a, a good transformers movie got made <laughs> uh, so i don't it doesn't get more surprising than that but i wanted to because we're we're dealing with miles morales and his situation where he's kind of living in one neighborhood and going to upscale school and the other etc kind of brought to mind uh, another one of my uh, one of my screener catch-ups which is the hate you give did everyone mm. see the hate you give no I I, it's like top of my pile but it's it's really long so I, <laughs> it's like over it's two and a half hours 133 the film that kind of reminded me the the most of was like it was a film like boys in the hood and i my, my thought that uh, boys in the hood at the time and the, the hate you give now is like I'm seeing stuff I haven't seen before. I haven't. I've seen some things that are some f- just basic facts about the everyday lives of African American characters that we just never see. I mean, I think this movie it's a it's a type of movie that can really change the way that people look at the world. And so, so for that, I kind of recommend it on top. You know, and, and it's flawed in the same way and same ways as Boys in the Hood. It's very heavy handed in certain respects, but it's also so powerful. I mean, it's a movie that opens with a father talking to his children about how to deal with the police. Um, it's a film that deals with police violence and uh, and and with this this girl who has to do a lot of code switching, who lives in a you know a mostly poor black neighborhood, and then but goes to school with white kids and has to and her behavior changes in one place to the other. It has all of these really interesting you know elements to it, and uh, and it feels so so of the of the moment and so so now, and to see it being released by a major studio. And, um, you know, and, uh, and I, I just love that it's, it, that it exists and that it's out there. So, so, uh, I, I, uh, I would recommend that one highly. Am I, am I really the only one who's seen it? No, I saw it. I saw that one. I mean, it, what did you, you think? For me, the heavy handedness of it really got in its way. Um, it does. I mean, the ending is not good. I, I, for sure. I, I, it's, it's one of those films. I am also very glad it's out there. I'm glad it's being released by a, a mainstream studio. Mm-hmm. I'm glad that more of these stories are being told. For me, I think I saw it maybe a little too close to Monsters and Men, which hits similar beats, but takes a really different kind of more kaleidoscopic uh, approach. And it's kind of more dialed down and low key and in the moment. It doesn't have that heightened. Like Hate You Give, I believe, is based on a YA novel. It is, and it feels it. Um, it does. It's a it's a YA story. So I I ended up liking Monsters and Men's approach to to very thematically similar stuff better. I mean, Hate You Give is it's one of those films that like 
I'm glad it exists. I'm glad if people watch it. I'm definitely glad if people get stuff out of it. Mm. Um, but you know, for me, I'd, I'd rather rather the other film. Uh, the performances are really resonant, though, for me. I'm, uh, Amanda Stenberg in the lead, and especially Russell Hornsby as her father. It's a real real standout kind of uh, supporting role that I I, I I wish were getting more attention at this time of the year. So. I like that too. Um, one other tiny little recommendation note to shift gears. I just decided to do a, a suite of recommendations. <laughs> um, I wanted to recommend our friend Mike D'Angelo's Patreon. I don't know if it, do every, any of you, I think Keith is contributing I, to this thing. I contribute. Um, and I, I, I am a fan. Uh, Mike Mike is a long, was a longtime writer for the film section of the AV Club and then at the Dissolve. Like many freelance film, film uh, writers, things have been a little bit leaner than I think one would like, uh, even even for someone of his skill. And so he started this 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 Patreon for people who are fans of his work to contribute. And I, and I feel like you get a lot for your money. And he never promotes his own stuff on on Twitter or anything else. So I feel like I need to promote it for him. It's patreon.com slash gemco. You can get him G-E-M-K-O. At a certain level, you can make him watch films or, or, or vote, vote, on a, vote on a poll to make him watch and review films. And his in the style of, of writing his, is so tight, he writes these very... Um, these short, maybe probably one, you know, two hundred word capsules, but but uh, the, the writing is so tight and economical and and provocative, and and you get to kind of duke it out with him in the uh, comments if you like. It's just it's kind of got a nice old internet quality that I you know I've known him for like since probably since since ninety five since I was first on the internet, and uh, you know uh, and he's somebody that you always want to kind of argue against. I don't know. I think it's worth uh, it's worth your dollar. To, or if you want to donate at that level, and it's worth uh, donating at higher levels too. It'd be interesting to me that self-publishing could be a, a sustainable practice or a partially sustainable practice for anyone. So I encourage you to uh, be a part of that. Yeah, if you want to see his uh, explanation of what he's doing and why he's doing it, he p- put it all on letterboxd.com under a- as a review for the 1996 short, Where's the Money, Ronnie? <laughs> so there's a, there's a lengthy essay there explaining sort of the economics of the times for film critics, uh, explaining how he's primarily making his money via poker these days. He does. He's good. He's telling, very good. Telling a lot of uh, stories about life in the film critic trenches, what he's doing, why he's doing it, why you should contribute, why you shouldn't feel pressured to contribute if you don't want to. Mm-hmm. It's a really interesting essay. Where's so, the money, Ronnie? Nineteen ninety-six. Yeah, and in the in that uh, the uh, it's patreon.com slash gemco g e m k o. That about wraps things up for this edition of The Next Picture Show. Genevieve, what's coming up next? Well, Keith, what's coming up next is a short break for your Next Picture Show crew as we take a couple weeks off at the beginning of January to recover from 2018 and recharge for what's to come in 2019, which is more episodes of The Next Picture Show. We promise we're coming back soon. Keep an eye on our Twitter account and your podcast feeds for our return later this month. In the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of Spider-Man movies and anything else film-related you'd like to talk about. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. We may post your response on Facebook for discussion or read it on a future episode of the show. Finally, before closing out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Genevieve? Uh, You can find me on Twitter at Genevieve Kosky, and I am the deputy TV editor at vulture.com. 
Tasha? You can find me on Twitter at Tasha Robinson. You can find my writing over at TheVerge.com, where I am the film and TV editor. And you can find me over on our sister podcast, Film Spotting, where I'm on the end of the year top 10 episodes opposite Adam, Josh, and a special guest, Chicago Tribune film writer, Michael Phillips. Scott, how about you? You can find me on Twitter at, at Scott underscore Tobias, and you can find my work at New York Times, Washington Post, NPR, Variety, uh, Vulture, and other fine outlets. I'm also the editor-in-chief of Oscilloscope's Musings blog. Keith? You can find me on Twitter at kphips3000, and I'm all over the place myself. You can find me at all my work at Vulture. You can find my work at Decider. You can find my work at Mel Magazine. You can find my work at, uh, where else am I writing these days? The Verge occasionally. Uh, Polygon. How about that? And I collect everything at KeithPhipps.com, although I'm behind on that. I need to catch up with that. So um, as for this podcast, you can stay updated on The Next Picture Show by visiting nextpictureshow.net, via Twitter at, at nextpicturepod, and via Facebook at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow. And if you haven't subscribed to the show on Apple Podcasts already, please consider it. Apple Podcast subscriptions are an important part of getting podcasts more prominence and more listeners. And while you're there, we appreciate every rating and review. Every thumbs up helps us find new listeners and keep our web shooters filled. Thanks to Dan <laughs> the Snake Jakes for his assistance producing the podcast and providing cookies. Uh, the Next Picture Show is proud to be a part of this film spotting family of podcasts. Please tune in next time. Swinging through the streets, a web of spider silk. Kicking all the butts of villains and their ilk. Bombs from goblins fling, fling. Pumpkins booming bright, bright. How hard it is to consistently bring peace to New York all night. Oh, Spidey Bells might be swelled to do more than fight crime. I got a lot of qualities that don't get much at time. I, I can sing, I can dance, I tell jokes, I act. I could be, be a big deal if my agent called me back. <laughs>